when I started preparing for this sermon, it so happened that I was experiencing some discouragement uh, at pain in my body and some of my friends' bodies, as well as the news, uh, just getting a little over, hearing, uh, letting the news get to me about LGBTQ and uh, national debt, uh, immigration, and what that was all going to mean to our future. And then I read Psalm 50, and I heard the voice of our God come through to me. Um, I heard in this psalm our God, our champion, who uh, will not let us, um, he's going to stick, see, see, see it through with us until the end. I don't care what the de- devil throws at us. Um, it was like, well, have you ever thr- uh, flown out of Cincinnati in a dark and dreary February and uh, It's been dark and dreary for a couple of weeks, and suddenly you climb above 26,000 feet, and blue sky and sun hits you. The enemy of our souls wants to use discouragement and doubt and temptation to rob us of our confidence and peace and joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's given us his word and his spirit uh, that if we hear it and let it touch us, will we'll strengthen and encourage us. So I pray that if you have, you might be having any discouragement and doubt this morning, that you would let the Father's voice and our, our God's voice come through this psalm to touch you. Psalm 50. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. He, our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. 
Mark, them, mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way aright, I will show the salvation of God. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word that is so encouraging. Thank you that as our uh, song, Mighty Fortress, proclaimed, you are mighty and, and you uh, do speak to us, Lord. Would you please speak to us through this psalm? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please get a sense of the drama that's going on in this setting. The Lord is using fire and tempest that evokes the very setting of Mount Sinai uh, and the giving of the law. It's recorded in Exodus 19, which says, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. In this solemn moment, the Lord had said to his people earlier, you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it, for whoever touches the edge of it shall be put to death. That, that's Exodus 19 as well. And the psalm continues to echo this psalm. So Psalm 50 is going to echo that passage in Exodus uh, when the Lord says, I am God, your God, in verse <clears throat> um, 8. Mirroring the first words of the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord, your God. So, so what the Lord is using sim- similar language in Psalm 50 as he did in giving of the Ten Commandments. So, so what does it mean to me? It means that we should pay careful attention. Careful attention, it's, a, it's quite a moment. In other words, we're to pay attention to this with the same solemnity and seriousness that the people paid attention to what the Lord was saying in fire and thunder uh, on, on the mountain. <clears throat> and as, as he does this, he's summoning his people to judgment. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. That's in uh, verse 5. And hundreds of years later, the Lord brings that message to the church age, right in our church age, when in First Peter, Peter writes, for it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I want to pull three things um, in this, from this psalm. Number one, the desire of God to have true fellowship with his people. Number two, the problem that keeps his, his people from having true fellowship with him. And three, the way that God solves this problem. <clears throat> Point one, God wants passionate 
fellowship with his people. Gather to me my faithful ones. That is, does it even need to be said that God desires passionate fellowship with his people? But sometimes it's so hard, speaking for myself, to, to even believe that the God of heaven and earth, the God who made uh, billions of galaxies, wants to be personally involved in my life? Well, please listen to his own word. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Zephaniah 4.16, Fear not, O Zion, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And hear the joy that this relationship brings the Apostle Paul when he writes in Ephesians 1, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And from the lips of Christ, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Even as you love me. That's what our God says, that how God loves us, even as he loves Christ. <clears throat> but there was a problem that was preventing this fellowship and it had brought the relationship to a crisis. And, and again, in verse 5, the Lord says, Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. To review, covenant, a bond between God and his people that is uh, uh, a bond in blood. Now, but we, when we make covenants, we don't, with our friends, we don't require a blood sacrifice so uh, what's going on here? Why sacrifice? Well, since man is sinful, this relationship must be accompanied by sacrifice representing the punishment of sin and the continual cleansing of it. And, in the, and of course, in the Old Testament, it was done through animal sacrifice. Sacrifices reminded the people that the only way of approaching God was through sacrifice. But we learn in this psalm that instead of faithfulness, uh, what the Lord is getting from his people is empty ritual, devoid of, especially of one thing, thankfulness. Genuine, heartfelt love and thankfulness. The people are good at offering bulls and rams and goats, but they don't offer it with thankfulness. In Matthew 15, 8, Jesus describes the same problem when he said, Quoting Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And one more thing, we learn in this sacrifice that not only they're not offering with thanksgiving, but they're breaking the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, we learn only about uh, three of them that they're breaking later in the Psalm 7, 8, 8, uh, 7, 8, 9, uh, 7, 
uh, is against committing adultery. Uh, says you shall not commit adultery. And here the people are keeping company with adulterers. Eight is against stealing. If you see, uh, the quote is, if you see a thief, you are pleased with him. <clears throat> and uh, nine is against bearing false witness. You, you, your tongue frames deceit against your brother. Uh, yeah, but those are what they did back then. Uh, we don't, uh, is that really relevant to us? Um, to apply today, I'm going to go to an illustration uh, that I need to go further than my own life uh, before Christ. I, how well I know these attitudes. I was baptized and raised in the church, but I was far from the Lord. Um, for example, some of you might rec- real- remember well, I, that in, um, well, in, up until 1970 or so, AT&T was the only phone company. And uh, it was all long-distance calls. Long-distance calls were a big deal. They were expensive. And however, some buddies of mine learned how to hack into that and, and actually get free phone calls, long-distance phone calls. And... So we were delighted in that. And if you, again, the Lord said, um, if you see a thief, you're pleased with him. And we were very pleased at that. And then there's against bearing false witness. We were quite able to uh, make up stories about people we didn't like and then bear false witness. And... Then, um, then to uh, keep company with adulterers. Does that happen today? Um, the, well, at age 18, I became a Christian. And under the pastoring of Reverend Jerry Kirk, uh, he brought something up that really, really shocked me. Um, there was a popular movie at the time along the, along the uh, order of Titanic, something like that. Uh, I, I don't remember the exact. <laughs> Was it? You remember that sermon? Okay. <laughs> well, it, uh, there was a, sec- a sexy adultery scene in it. And, pe- and Pastor Kirk said, you know, if you go and watch that, well, why don't you go to your neighbor's house and, and look into their bedroom at night because that's what you're doing. You're acting like peeping toms. You're watching someone else in the screen uh, commit adultery. and um, But society sanctions, hey, it's in the movies, so it's okay. Uh, that's what, but it isn't okay. And uh, that illustration always struck with me, and I'm glad I can use it today. The so, in essence, you're keeping company with adulterers when you do that. But to God, um, but how can God's people, how did they get in that deplorable condition and how did it happen to us? They had seen the glory on Mount Sinai and now they had um, gone, degraded themselves into this condition, empty of thankfulness and breaking God's commandments. 
Another way of asking it is might be, what are the motivations of the human heart that allow unthankfulness and empty ritual to develop? Uh, well, through the unfolding of scripture, we learn that instead of holding God as their ultimate treasure, people were replacing him with idols as their ultimate treasure. Romans 1 explains it. For they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, <clears throat> but replaced him, uh, I'm sorry, for although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God into images. And our hearts, said John Calvin, are like idol factories. Subpoint one, the scriptures tell us that we're created in the image of God. Uh, in his book, Identity and Idolatry, the Image of God and Its Inversion, Richard Lins makes the point that to be the image of something, there must be an original. There's no image without an original. It's a re we, an image is a reflection or representation of something else. And then since then, that's true, and we're made in the image of God, we either have to reflect God's image or to reflect another, something else. And we, in other words, we have to make something else our, uh, we can't, we cannot not worship that which we treasure above all else that gives us our security and secu uh, significance. Well, what were the people treasuring in his place? Uh, Isaiah says, son of man, take these, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Uh, the elders I, must have said, idols, what idols? We don't, we don't see idols. But an idol doesn't have to be a carved image, a little carved image that people bow down to worship. Usually it's a good thing that has been taken to be an ultimate thing. For example, career, marriage, money, power, sports. Anything that our hearts take uh, can be a good thing and turn them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them and they become the center of our lives uh, and our security because they think they can give us our, our significance. And when they become our true joy and identity, then our worship, we crowd out the true and living God and our worship becomes thankless and empty. For example, Isaiah relates that God was angry at his people for worshiping money at the expense of their neighbors. When he said, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no room. In other words, his people were worshiping money by the, uh, buying their neighbor's houses. These were the inheritance that God had given them. And so they were banished from their own property to make uh, others wealthy. Another idol in Isaiah 5 was revelry and partying that excluded God. Woe to those who rise up early in the morning 
they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Subpoint two, wherever Paul went, he discerned and uh, then exposed the idols that were people were worshiping in order to help them turn to the true and living God. In Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians, Paul proclaims his thanks to God that the Thessalonians had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. We don't know what the Thessalonians' idols were, but we know in Athens the people worshiped knowledge and uh, knowledge and wisdom. Um, represented by the goddess Athena. And in, in Ephesus, Demetrius, the silver, silversmith, worshipped money. And all in, 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 in broad strokes today, we can, in Boston, the home of the Ivy League, they, they worship discernment, or rather money. Uh, not money, I'm sorry. Uh, knowledge and wisdom the same gods that they worshiped in the old days. And in ba- uh, the, the spirit of Demetrius is alive in New York S- City, and I think Cincinnati, when uh, people are measured by how much money they have. In Washington, power is worshiped, and in, in Hollywood, Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, is adored and worshiped. Subpoint three, how do we get out of this condition in which we continually fashion idols that crowd God out of our lives? Answer, you must be born again. In other words, we can't change ourselves. The idols, the, the Lord does it for us. He gives us, when we're born again, his spirit, a new birth in Christ, it's such that we have his DNA in us now and we are um, given a new nature so that as the Lord said through the prophet Jeremiah in the new covenant I will put my law within them and write it in their hearts in other words he frees us to worship him as him as our supreme treasure and we can gain a thankful heart I told you that as a non-Christian, I love stealing and and hanging with adulterers and sexual sin and and lying. But after I was born again, although I struggled, these deep down my love for them, those things changed. It was gone. What is the thing that is ultimate to you that gives your heart its deepest joy and meaning? Here's a test. If we can discern if we have idols in our hearts if we ask ourselves if we could live without them or if we overwork to achieve them or if we become fearful, angry, and bitter if, if the things in our lives are threatened. Uh, for, if our bank account is our idol, then if it's good and high, I, I feel like a million dollars today. But if we lose that, uh, then we might feel like throwing their, ourselves off a tall building. So that, that's a pretty good indicator about what we ultimately treasure. 
But once we've been born again, we have a new heart. We're not instantly transformed, though. We, we have a fight on our hands. Uh, tying in here to what we learned from Colossians, that we need to put on the new, take off the old and put on the new. We've been full of idols, but now the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is the center of our lives. Again, those idols put up a fight. James was writing to Christians when he said, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to become a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James is saying that when we go to other things, money, sex, power, um, that the world treasures and for our greatest satisfaction and uh, that we're like adulterers. Uh, we, 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 um, and not giving God our, uh, his, and not honoring God as our ultimate treasure who gives us our real joy and satisfaction. So when I'm in this condition, I go to, to church and offer empty praise because it's when I go home to my other lovers, money, sex, family, sports, that I get my deepest satisfaction. Point three, how God deals with our problems so we can win the battle against idolatry. The last verse of this psalm proclaims, but to, to him who, offer, who walks, who orders his soul aright, I will show the salvation of God. If that was the last word in the Bible, we be in trouble because in and of ourselves we don't order order our souls aright uh, in fact it's impossible the apostle Paul said uh, uh, I do what I hate and don't do what I want to do uh, who will help me but there was one who did order his soul aright he came to earth and walked before God in perfect obedience and God addressed our sin and thanklessness problem by putting it on him. For our sake, 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God took one, our idol worship and our wickedness, and he became what God hates in order that we could become the ones who God loved. And in the moment our eyes are opened and we turn to Christ, God treats us as his own son. And he sees us as being righteous as his own son before him. I give you an illustration I heard from Tim Keller. In a sermon he referenced to an NCIS TV episode in which Charles Durning, the old actor, played a an 80-year-old World War II veteran who was wanted for something or another. And two burly military police came and found him. And they looked at him in his shabby clothes and were looked at him disdainfully. But then someone tur turned Durning's jacket, opened his jacket, and on his chest was the Congressional Medal of Honor. And the man, the policeman, suddenly 
opened their eyes and were astonished and began to treat him with respect. And the, the point is, the one, they, they, saw, yeah, they saw him as the one who had received the, uh, the, the honor, uh, the medal for the, showing the greatest courage and valor in battle. And wonder of wonders, that's how God sees us when we're in Christ. That in a sense, God pins Christ's own medal that he had won for his sacrifice and courage. He pins it on our chest just as if we had done it. And when I'm in Christ, God sees me as his own spotless son. John 17, the glory says, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one, and I in them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Why do you think Paul was so joyful about the gospel and, and so incensed that the Judaizers in Galatia were trying to rob the people of uh, Christ's the magnitude of what Christ had done for them. Have you come to treasure that Christ that way? Has the impact of what he's done broken in on your soul? Jonathan Edwards wrote on how important our affections are in, uh, in our life with Christ. He wrote, he said, there's a difference between having opinion that God is holy and gracious and of having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. In other words, we can have an intellectual knowledge that we, of what Christ has done, but we need to know it. We need to taste it. If, if we don't taste of its sweetness, it's like, kind of like we have honey in our mouths, but all we can taste is a gooiness. It's one thing to know that Christ died for us in our intellect and another to know the sweetness in our soul and emotions. And we also learn in Ephesians that this is the necessary work of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope of his calling, the riches of his inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. In conclusion, I give you three illustrations. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, <clears throat> wrote in his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chiefest of Sinners, writes how he was tormented by a sense that he had committed the unpardonable sin and also a sense that he, like Esau, had forsaken had, had, had um, forsaken the, the the blessing, and that he would be uh, forever banished from heaven. He was also troubled that, with when unrighteous thoughts bubbled up, that how can God love me? Um, I can't believe. I'm, that I'm even saved. <clears throat> well, one day, and I'm going to quote from his book, 
But one day as I was passing in the field, suddenly the sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, he lacks my righteousness. I saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did the chains fall off my legs. Now I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. He had tasted the sweetness of Christ. Illustration number two. A teenage girl came to her youth pastor for counseling. She related how depressed she was that she was unpopular and couldn't get a date. Her, her pastor explained that as hurtful as that might be, didn't she realize that she was loved by Christ and that he had died for her and, and was deeply loved by him? And she said, I, I know all that, but what good does it do me when I can't get a boy to even look at me? Well, I'm going to cut her some slack. She, after all, the teenage years can be turbulent for anyone. But we can see that her uh, problem was she intellectually knew that Christ had died for her, but it hadn't penetrated her heart. It, 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 she hadn't tasted it yet to the point that it transformed her life. In that period of life anyway, her ultimate treasure was popularity. How much, what she, um, yeah, that was her ultimate treasure. Thankfully over time, Christ's work and love for her did penetrate and she did come to a place of true worship. Finally, for my final illustration, I give you Zacchaeus uh, from the account recorded in Luke 19 and what had happened, what happened when Christ came into his life. The Bible says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man there by the, was, was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy some background. First, we need to know uh, just where tax collectors stood in that culture at that time. Uh, we know that the, the um, in our culture, uh, being an IRS agent might have a little stigma. You might not announce it at a cocktail party that you're an IRS, IRS agent, but in generally, they're pretty well regarded in our community. Uh, as being honest people who are just working to get a living. But we don't really have a template to understand how despised tax collectors were in that culture. They, the Romans had systematically transferred the wealth of Judah back home to Rome, and they did it by means of Jewish tax collectors who, and the, with the Roman army uh, as acting as enforcers. And it was legal extortion, and they were control, uh, regarded as the betrayers of the people and collaborators with the enemy. 
And, but, and even Zacchaeus was no ordinary tax collector. In Greek, the word is archetolones, an arch tax collector. Arch, like we know, arch villains and arch enemies. He was a big, important tax collector over many others. So he was one of the most wealthy and the most hated. The only thing that Zacchaeus had was money, he and what it could buy him. We, we can ask of Zacchaeus, why would you sacrifice everything in, in, in life and be so hated? How could you have betrayed and harmed so many people? Answer, money. Money was his idol. It had become his ultimate treasury and treasure and security. So, when Jesus came through, we're told that he couldn't see Jesus because of his stature, because of his shortness. We can imagine, can't we, that no one would allow Zacchaeus. He might be trying to get through and he went so he could see Jesus, but he was short. And the people were not giving an inch, not to him. So he did a shocking thing. He climbed a tree. Why shocking? And in that honor and shame culture, to be so undignified as to, like a little boy, climb a tree was unheard of. So for, uh, but, so why did he do it? Luke tells us he wanted to see Jesus. He was humiliating himself, shows to us how, how desperate he was to see this Jesus. So Jesus had come into a ta- this town and saw mainly religious and respectable people, and yet he looked down uh, on prostitutes and sinners, like Z- who had lo- who looked down on prostitutes and sinners, like Zacchaeus. But Z- but Jesus said and looked to him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So the Bible said that Jesus came down and received him joyfully. So when Zacchaeus saw that Jesus had chosen him, the 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 spies tax collector for a personal relationship, his whole spiritual relationship, his whole spiritual understanding began to change. The evidence shows that when Zacchaeus realized this great prophet. This great man of God was choosing him of all the people for a personal relationship. Reading between the lines, the evidence shows that, that this act, action uh, showed, helped him understand that God's salvation was by grace, not through his own lack of moral achievement or good performance. The Bible says that he received Jesus Joyfully, He must have realized that also that in repentance and faith he must, needed to bear fruit. He gave up what he loved, had loved most, money. Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. Father, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost.
In other words, the Lord Jesus recognized the Holy Spirit was working mightily in Zacchaeus' life. And he was turning from idols to serve the living God. Well, what had happened? The eyes of Zacchaeus' heart had been enlightened. And he began to know the hope of his calling, the riches of his inheritance in the saint, and his incomparably great power. Lastly, tying back to Psalm 50, in verse 14, the Lord says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. How does God change unthankful hearts that do not offer the sacrifice of praise into hearts that offer true gratitude and love of God? Answer, he does it through the power of the Holy Spirit who awakens, who when we are awakened to Christ as as to what he has done for us and loves us so that this gets into our hearts and souls and we change whatever was our idol and to make him our true treasure. He cuts those cords of the idols little by little such that he indeed becomes our ultimate treasure. Amen. Oh. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for this word. May we um, learn from your word and from what happened to Zacchaeus and um, in, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, please rise for the benediction. The Lord bless and keep you, and the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.